Hello, neighbor. You are listening to the New Garden Church podcast, and we are so glad you're here. Our church meets at 10 a.m. at DuPont Tyler Middle School in Hermitage, Tennessee. You can join us in person, or you can catch our gatherings after the fact on our YouTube channel. We would love to hear from you. In 2022, we are studying the Bible together through the lens of our theme, Life is a Garden. We hope that you enjoy what you hear today and check back in with us again soon. Hey, if this is your first time, my name is Jeff. I'm the, the lead minister here at New Garden, and I get another week to talk about uh, God. We've been going through this Life as a Garden series, and we're still in the garden. We're in Genesis chapter 2 today. But if you haven't been with us, uh, or if you have and you want to go back, I just want to remind you that you can go to our website, newgarden.church slash 2022. It's got... Um, the majority of the videos that we record, and it's got all the handouts and slides. So if you see a verse or a slide that you think, I would need to go back and read that, um, it's all online. So the slides from today are already posted. The video will be posted later. But this is kind of where we've been going through. So we spent um, about four weeks in kind of Genesis chapter 1 and the, the kind of first creation narrative. And we, we said this last week, but just a, a reminder. Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3 paints a large-scale picture of, a, of God's establishment of cosmic order with his divine images who represent his rule so that the world becomes sacred space for his presence to dwell. And so that kind of sets the whole narrative for the rest of Scripture. This creative God who wants to bring order into creation to partner with this humanity he creates so that his presence can dwell with humans as we work together to make this place better than it is. And last week we pointed out, now once you move into that, the next kind of part of the story, it, you can break it into this movement, these different movements that actually mirror one another. So last week we talked about how the human is created. So there's, there's, this, there's no shrubs, there's no plants, there's nothing, it's just dust. And there's this stream that rises and it seems like the stream goes into the dust and God takes this mud and forms this human and then he takes the human and he, he places the human in the garden and he gives them this, uh, this job order to take care of it, to cultivate, to tend to it. And then at the very end of that scene, this human is presented with what is in the garden. All these great trees with all this great fruit that he can just have, a, just try it all, taste test, see which is your favorite. They're all good for food. And then there's also two other trees. There's a tree in the middle of the garden known as the tree of life. And then it seems like there's another tree beside of it called the tree of the knowledge of good and bad. And so we're kind of left with this picture of something. There's a test presented before the human. But we don't know how it's, what's going to happen to it. So the story then kind of moves on to this, this uh, what we're going to see is the, the woman is created. So this is, how, this is all prelude to what's about to happen. So... The human is created. He's placed in the garden. Things look good, but this is what happened next. Um, then the Lord God, and just a quick reminder, whenever you see the word Lord in all capital letters, that's the English Bible's way of telling you this is the divine name of God. So 
when God meets up with people later in the story and they say, who are you? And he says, I am who I am. Um, it, it, it becomes his name, Yahweh. And the Jewish people, um, towards the time of Jesus, they had this thing where they didn't even say the name. They would just say, literally, they would just say the name. Um, or they would say God and kind of, even today, it'll be G-D because it's such a holy name, holy thing that they don't want to even say the name. So, but that's, what, that's what's represented. So it's, then Yahweh Elohim, or Yahweh God, said, it's not good for the human to be alone. Now, if you start on page one, and you, and you just read up to this point, this is going to jump out. Because so far in the story, everything we've heard, God does this, it's good. Does this, he looks, it's good. He does this, it's very good. And so this is the first time in the story where like the brakes screech to a halt and you say, whoa, wait a second, something has, is not right, right? And what's not good? Well, the human is alone. Solution. I will make him a helper suitable for him. We're going to come back to this phrase and dive into it. So, the problem and then first solution. And out of the ground, Yahweh Elohim formed every animal of the field, every bird of the sky, and brought them to the human to see what he would call them. And whatever the human called a living creature, that was its name. So the human, again, it's showing this authority that God is giving over to the human to, to partner with him, say, hey, here's some animals. What, what are you going to name them? Right? So you, you play a part in this. So the man, uh, or the human should be, uh, gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, to every animal of the field. But for the human, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So problem, first solution, doesn't work. Problem continues. Second solution. So Yahweh Elohim caused a deep sleep to fall upon the human, and he slept. Then he, being God, took one of his, being the human's ribs, we'll talk about this word, and closed up the flesh at that place. And uh, Yahweh God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the human and brought her to the human. Then the human said, this is it. At last, this bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called Isha because she was taken out of Ish. So the English woman and man help us reflect that same, but in the Hebrew, it's she was taken, uh, she'll be called Isha because she was taken out of Ish, woman out of man. Uh, for this reason, and the kind of narrator breaks in, hey, for, reader. For this reason, what just happened? A man shall leave, abandon his father and his mother and be joined to his woman. And they shall become one flesh. And the human and his Isha were both naked, but they were not ashamed. What a great story, right? Okay, so let's, let's get into it. So, um... 
in the, in the first part, again, just to, just to break down the order of how things go, and we, we, I kind of looked into this as we went, but you've got, first of all, you've got a problem. The human is alone. There is no helper, uh, is what the, the translation says. No helper suitable for him. So Yahweh acts, sorry, you can't see the purple very well. So the problem is presented, Yahweh acts. The first thing Yahweh does he brings the animals. He, well, he forms the animals first. He forms the animals of the field, birds of the sky, and brings them to the human. And there's a lot of Jewish commentators who look back at this and say, you know, how did this happen? Um, and one, one thing that they, they think, especially looking forward to like the Noah story where the, the animals come two by two, um, it makes it seem as if this is how the animals are walking in front of the human. One, you know, a, a bull and a cow walk by. That's not me, you know. And look, that bull has a, a girlfriend cow. Not them. I'm going to name them whatever, and they keep going. You know, you've got um, a, a, a boy rabbit and a girl rabbit. Okay, they go. Oh, look. Not that's not me either. Um, but look, they're they're in love. They're already having babies. Go get out of here, you know. And, um, and so all these pairs, maybe pairs of animals go by that does two things for the human. One, he realizes there's, there's nobody else like me who, can, who, who, is, who reflects who I am. There's nobody like me. And also, it seems like everybody else has an other Right? So not only is there no one like me, but I am alone in this. And so that's the, the again, the commentators say this is a, a double punch to the human to realize I'm alone and there's nobody like me. So that's the, the first solution. The animals are brought and it ends with the human naming. It gives each animal its name. Um, it continues into the next verse. The human continues to name. But the problem is not solved. Still, animals go by, birds go by, a, a helper suitable is not found. So, Yahweh acts. Second solution. So, Yahweh uh, puts this sleep upon the human, and now the woman is brought before the human. This is it. Counterpart. This is the, the, this is the one suitable for me. And what happens the human then names, just like he named the animals. Now the woman is brought and he names her. She will be called woman, Isha. So the problem is solved. The lone human is now two. We have the, 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 the solution to the problem. And then the, the author continues to give us the explanation of, listen, this, this is not just an isolated event. This is why a man will leave his, the, the family that he came from, the blood and the flesh that he came from, and be joined and become one flesh with another human from another place. So um, that's the story. Let's, let's talk about a few things. Um, one is this phrase, a helper suitable for him. Now, if you want to do any sort of Bible study, one thing I recommend is just 
uh, comparing different translations to another. So if you find a verse that can be either confusing or you want to study more, one great thing to do is just, especially today, because a computer will just, you don't have to have all your Bibles out. A computer will just do this. And so one of my favorite websites is BibleHub.com, where you can just type in a verse and it will just give you every translation pretty much that's out there. And then you can kind of compare. And anytime you see a verse where things are translated differently, it shows you, okay, something is going on here. Um, under the surface, like, like translators, it may not be exactly clear or people are landing in different spots. And so it may be worth more study. So here are some of the ways that this gets translated. Uh, the New American Standard, a helper suitable for him. And, and all of them say, the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make him and then fill in the blank. So uh, NASB says a helper suitable. ESV, a helper fit for him. New Living, a helper who is just right for him. The Christian Standard, a helper corresponding to him. Holman Christian, a helper as his complement. New King James, a helper comparable to him. The King James, and help meet for him. So if you're, that's a good, and help meet. I like that. Um, so whatever, whatever is going on here, it's revealing something. That, uh, that, that there is some question about what exactly is this. Um, and so if you go to the, the Hebrew, it is the phrase, azer konegdo. Um, azer being help or helper, and then connecto, suitable for him. We'll get into that. So, so the first word is the word azer, which is, I'm going to give you my second resource for today, which is blueletterbible.com. So you can go to blueletterbible.com and choose any verse, and it will give you the Hebrew. Um, and for those of us who don't read fluent Hebrew, it will then break down in either kind of our English order and then connect the word to it. Or you can click like forward interlinear and it'll put it in the Hebrew order. So you're kind of reading things a little bit backwards. Um, but it kind of, it helps. So, but what you can do is then you scroll down and you can find the word that corresponds to the English. So in this, in this instance, we're going to look for the word helper. Which if we scroll down, it would be down here somewhere. And then what we can do is click on its number. And it will pop up what the word is. It will tell you how to pronounce it, you can, you can click on the sound and a person will actually tell you. It'll say something like uh, um, something uh, Strong's H5828 Azer. Azer. So you can go listen to it. So Azer, we find out it occurs 21 times in the Hebrew Bible. 19 of those times it's translated as help and Two of those times in the KJV, it's translated as help meet, which is interesting because in the other translations, it would be similar. 19 times it's translated as help, two times as helper, and yet it's the same word. Um, and so if you go, uh, if you scroll down, if you keep scrolling, it will give you a list of every time this word occurs. And so sometimes it's good to let the Bible define what a word means by just looking at how it's used in other instances throughout the Bible. So this is, these are the majority of the ways the, the word azer is used in the Bible. And I'll go ahead and tell you, it's mainly for God. So 
Then the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a azer, suitable for him. Verse 20, the man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds, the animals, but for the human, there was not a azer suitable for him. Then you get into Exodus, and uh, you find azer in people's names as well. So Eliezer, Moses names his child. The other was named Eliezer because he said, the God of my father was my azer and saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. In, uh, in Samuel, when they defeat the Philistines, Samuel will set up a rock and he'll give it the name Ebenezer, or as we know, Ebenezer Scrooge, which means stone of help. So when we sing, come thou fount, you know, here I raise my Ebenezer, we're singing, here I raise my stone of help. Um, Deuteronomy uh, 33, and this was regarding Judah. So he said, uh, Jacob is blessing his sons. Hear Yahweh, the voice of Judah, and bring him to his people. With his hands, he contended for them. And may you be a azer against his adversaries. So again, these are, God is being the azer. Deuteronomy 33, there is no one like God of Jeshurun, which is just kind of a, another nickname for God. It means upright one. Uh, who rides the heavens to your azer and the clouds in his majesty. Blessed are you, Israel, who is like you, a people saved by Yahweh, the shield of your azer. And he who is the shield of your majesty, so your enemies will cringe before you and you will trample on their high places. Psalm 20, may he send you azer from the sanctuary and support you from Zion. Psalm 33, our soul waits for Yahweh. He is our azer and our shield. But I am afflicted and needy. Hurry to me, God. You are my azer and my savior. Yahweh, do not delay. Once you spoke in vision to your godly ones and said, I have given azer to the one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. Psalm 115, Israel, trust in Yahweh. He is their azer and their shield. House of Aaron, trust in Yahweh. He is their azer and their shield. You who fear Yahweh, trust in Yahweh. He is their azer and their shield. Psalm 121, I will raise my eyes to the mountain, and where will my azer come? My azer comes from Yahweh, who made heaven and earth. Our azer is in the name of Yahweh, who made heaven and earth. Blessed is he whose azer is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in Yahweh his God. Hosea 13, God says through the prophet, It is to your own destruction, Israel, that you are against me, against your azer. So I, I know that's a lot of verses, but the majority of the time that the word azer is used in the Hebrew Bible, it's in reference to God, and it's surrounded by these ideas of deliverance, of protection, of salvation, of strength, um, of, of Israel not being able to do this on their own, and they need somebody else to come in and to save the day for them. And that is their azer. And that's the word that, that God looks around and says, listen, it's not good for this human to be alone. I'm going to make him an azer. I'm going to make him someone who can deliver him from this issue, this problem. In other words, uh, it is not good for the human to be alone because the story cannot move forward without this indispensable help. And I think help is a great way to describe what the woman is to the man. 
But I think what we have to do is we, we need to make sure that we're, we're hearing the word help from the right perspective. Because it depends on how you think of the word help that will then really translate how you look at the woman in relation to the man. Because I think especially for us in America, in, in, our, in our day and age, um, help often comes from those lower than us. If you are rich and you are powerful and you need help, it usually refers to those people who are going to come and plant your fields, come and clean your house, um, come and take care of your children, come, you know, a subordinate to you. But the way it seems that the Hebrew Bible uses this word help, it is from the opposite direction. If you are poor and destitute and in need of help, it is not something you can do on your own. It is telling Lassie, hey, Timmy is stuck in the well, go get help. You know, it is not good for him to be alone in the well. He can't save himself. Go get help. And so I think we just need to make sure that when we hear the word help, that we're, we're hearing it from the right perspective. Okay? The woman is not made to be the man's assistant or the man's subordinate. You know, the story presents her as this character who is coming in to rescue him from a dilemma. And it's not putting her above the man, but it is putting her at least at equal with the man to come in and be that counterpart, which, which is the next part. So the next word, so we've got azer in mind, help or helper, okay? But it's, again, it's not a subordinate role. I will make him a, an azer who is connecto. Connecto, it's a compound word in the Hebrew. Uh, the first part is about like, as, or according to. And the second part means in front of, before, or opposite. And so a really smart guy, Victor Hamilton, he puts it this way. The last part of verse 18 reads literally, I will make him, for him, a helper as in front of him, or according to what is in front of him. This last phrase, as in front of him, or according to what is in front of him, connecto, occurs only here and in verse 20. It suggests that what God creates for the human will correspond to him. Thus, the new creation will neither be a superior nor an inferior, but an equal. The creation of this helper will form one half of a polarity and will be to the man as the South Pole is to the North Pole. So one of the the best words that I can use to describe this, I think, would be just a, a mirror. It's almost a, it's a mirror image, but it's, a, it's different than what he is, but it's also very similar to what he is. It is someone who's, who's, who is standing in front of, uh, a, a, a deliverer who is right uh, in front of me or according to me. So in Genesis 2, you have one, the man, who, if they remain alone, cannot bring about the thing that God called them to. So God causes them to pass out, and God, as Azer, provides an Azer through which the divine promise can come into existence. Because, if you, again, if you think of Genesis chapter 1, when God creates humanity, we hear God creates humanity in his image. In his image, he creates them. Male and female, he creates them. And so we have this picture of the image of God is a reflection, we talked about, of diversity and unity. That the two 
are one, but the one image of God is presented as two. And so when you get to the story of the human alone, how are they supposed to be fruitful and multiply? If the man is alone, he's got no shot, right? And so Genesis 2 is, is filling in that answer to that problem of the human being alone. And again, it, it's a, not only a, a problem to be solved in the story, but I think it is an image for us to understand what, what humanity is supposed to be. Not just between male and female or husband and wife or men and women, but amongst all of humanity. And especially as you carry it forward into the church, that, that two different people can somehow, through God's help, act as one. And in that unity, reflect the image of God. Okay, let's keep moving because I want to talk about one more word. And that's this word rib that gets translated ribs, the word selah. It occurs 42 times in the Hebrew Bible. And you know how many times it's translated rib? Twice. Yeah, right here and right here. Usually it's, it's referred to as like side. It's an architectural term most of the time. So this is what John Walton says. Uh, the word selah is used about 40 times in the Hebrew Bible, but it is not an anatomical term in any other passage. Outside of Genesis 2, and with the exception of 2 Samuel 16, referring to the other side of the hill, the word only, uh, is only used architecturally in the tabernacle temple passages, and he gives the, the list there. It can refer to planks or beams in these passages, but more often it refers to one side or the other, typically when there are two sides, rings along two sides of the ark, rooms on two sides of the temple, the north or the south side. On the basis of Adam's statement, combined with these data on usage, we would have to conclude that God took one of Adam's sides, likely meaning he cut Adam in half and from one side built the woman. So we have the splitting of the Adam. Uh, sorry, that's, that's really bad. It's really bad. But but this is, again, if, if you read through the rest of the, the Bible, uh, the Hebrew scriptures, the way this term is used, um, you know, you, he took from his side somewhere, we thought, okay, where, what part of my side? I guess my rib. But the word doesn't mean rib anywhere else. And so it, it, it's almost as like God puts the man into this deep sleep. And maybe he has this vision of God coming down and dividing him in half, you know? I mean, God has already formed man out of the, the mud, and so now he takes that other half and somehow forms this, this other human who is like him, but who is also different from him. And then when he awakes from this sleep, there she is. Like, the dream has become a reality. And this, this one who is here to save him from his aloneness is standing right in front of him. And what is his response? Man, She's got half my bones. She's got half my flesh. Like, she is from me. I'm going to call her Isha because she was taken from Ish or out of Ish. And then somehow, these two who are different become, again, one flesh. And that one flesh 
the reflection of that relationship includes no shame. They're naked, they're alone, they're together, but the relationship is not broken yet. It's not severed. And the severing of the relationship, which we know is going to come, again, it's just one picture that Genesis paints about this ideal that God wants humanity to work together and over and over in different ways, humanity continues to split apart. So if you continue to read through the first 11 chapters, you're going to find the fracturing of the unity between man and woman. So marriage is broken. You're going to find the fracturing of the unity between two siblings. So this family is divided. This fracturing of the unity of a city. Communities are divided. Genesis 6 is a crazy story of this distorting of the unity of heaven and earth and spiritual beings and, and terrestrial beings. And so this, the cosmos is kind of divided. Genesis 9, the fracturing of the unity of the extended family. All these tribes start splitting off. And then finally at the, in Babylon, uh, the Tower of Babylon, the distorting of the unity of the whole human families where now nations are divided. And so the whole rest of Scripture, we've got this picture of a God who wants to bring everybody together, and humans just keep pushing each other apart. And so what we find in Genesis chapter 12 is God starts weaving people back together by the calling of Abram. And we find this covenant commitment is what is going to, to, to take to bring everybody back together. And then Jesus comes on the scene, and he starts preaching this, this gospel of the kingdom. And then he dies on the cross and he calls people to this new church. And um, new churches pop up, but they're having problems too. And so Paul writes to a church in Ephesus who is, again, facing division, facing problems amongst each other. And this is what Paul says to them. He says, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience bearing with one another in love, being diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then seven times he gives us ways that we are one. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you also were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all, and through all, and in all. And in the next chapter, he's going to give examples of how people can work together in different roles. And eventually he's going to get to husbands and wives and how they are supposed to relate to one another. And then he sums up this whole thing about being unified with this. He says, For we are members of Christ's body. And then he reaches all the way back to Genesis chapter 2 and quotes Genesis chapter 2 as an example of what unity is. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Man, this is a profound mystery. But let me tell you, I'm talking about Christ and the church. That the human and his woman, the Isha and the Ish, the way that they are able to relate to one another is a reflection of what the church and Christ is to be about. It's a reflection of what we are called to be with one another in, in certain ways because that is a reflection of the image of God. We can't do it alone. We can't, we can't, it can't just be us and Jesus in our pickup trucks. Like There's something about coming to the table and knowing me and Josh, we don't see everything eye to eye. We could disagree on so many things, 
But all of that is pretty much irrelevant when we come to the table and we take the bread and we take the cup and we say, listen, buddy, we're the, we're the same. And this, this bread and this cup, this is our azer. Like we, we couldn't do it on our own. We can't save ourselves. And this is what unifies us. And so the rest of the, the, rest of the story is going is to say this. And this is the last slide. When you get those many who realize that they are also one, not in spite of their differences, but because of their differences, their oneness images God in a way much more richly than one person can do alone. God does not call us to uniformity, but he does call us to unity. And so today at the table, you know, let that be a reminder that when we were alone in our sin and our trespasses, as the KJV would say, that even as a sinner, Christ came to die for us, that Jesus was our azer when we could not save ourselves. And each week we come to the table and we just, we remember that, we celebrate that. Not only with us and Jesus is saying, thank you, Jesus, but with one another. Yeah, I'm a bum too, you know? Mike, you're a sinner too. Me too, brother. Let's, let's break the bread together. So let's do that today. I'm going to pray, and then we've got three tables, one in the back, two in the front. Um, let's just spend a few minutes thanking God for being our help. Father, I thank you. From the first pages of, of your word, you present us with these short little stories that have so much to look at and learn from. And God, you just continue that story throughout. And so God, for those of us who feel alone, help us to know that we're not. You are for us. You go in front of us. You go behind us. You are outside and within. And God, as we go to the table today, help us just to lay down all that stuff that could separate us and just embrace one another in love of saying, listen, we're brothers and sisters in Jesus. That's more important than anything else. So God, we thank you. Jesus, we glorify you. Spirit, let us live and walk according to what you say. It's through the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Let's go to the table. That's it for this time. Thank you for checking in with us, and we'll be back with another episode next week.